Imagine a world where we never had to face ethical challenges like these. Confronting a store manager suspected of theft. Firing an older but underperforming worker. Confronting workplace peers who use vulgar language. Closing a facility and laying off employees. Responding to cutthroat competitors. Being urged by a supervisor to hasten an end-of-life decision at a nursing home. Deciding whether to hire homosexuals. Feeling pressure from a boss to be dishonest with a customer. Resigning a profitable client who verbally abuses employees. Resolving conflicts among owners of a family business. Being betrayed by a partner who left the firm and took key clients. Becoming aware of the employer's attempt to inflate an insurance claim. Participating in corporate tax evasion. Making potentially deceptive sales claims. Being asked to backdate transactions to the prior fiscal year to improve year-end results. Refusing a bribe as a public official. Witnessing racial discrimination in the workplace. Using bankruptcy as a shield against creditors. Raising executive salaries when rank-and-file workers are being laid off and losing benefits. Failing to disclose important information to customers. Having a friend ask for copies of competitors' proposals in a request-for-proposal process. Using predatory practices with suppliers. Firing a worker for repeated tardiness, then learning she is a victim of spousal abuse. Deciding whether to resort to a lawsuit for debt collection. Maintaining church-state separation in a public sector office. Violating the privacy of consumers' records. Deciding whether to prosecute a pastor caught shoplifting. Determining a fair price. Being pressured to bypass audit procedures. Objecting to the incongruity between the company's espoused values and its actions. Struggling with personal guilt over past theft. Selling ads for a cable TV company that offers pornographic programming. Overworking or burning out employees. Choosing to resign due to a lack of a support for a decision. Trying to avoid conflicts of interest. In rendering investment advice. Feeling pressure to meet impossible expectations. Seeking potential danger in board members' conflicts of interest. Wondering how to provide work-life balance for working mothers. Confronting employees about internet pornography at work. Learning about falsified employment application after the hire. Administering a bank lending policy that is unfair to low-income borrowers. Suspecting a pattern of sex discrimination in hiring. Finding that the employer is indifferent to an unsafe work environment. Protecting employees' jobs while selling the business to a new owner. Struggling with whether to confront and or report a coworker for alcohol abuse. Making insurance reimbursement decisions that affect patients' access to treatment. Protecting Arab American employees from unfair treatment after 9-11. Objecting to the inequitable distribution of employee bonuses. Hearing the sexual harassment complaint of a coworker. Being asked to cover up an adulterous relationship between coworkers. Concluding that a product may exploit children. 
Discovering embezzlement by a senior executive. Responding to a bribery offer by a supplier. Sensing subtle harassment of a person with a disability. Deciding if the company will still support Boy Scouts after their stance on homosexuality. Falsifying time records for billing purposes. Being asked by a legal client to make false statements. Dismissing a hospital employee for lying to patients. Sorry. Weighing the consequences of disclosing financial problems to employees. Developing wasteful and unnecessary projects to justify continued grant funding. Opening for business on a Sunday. Developing advertising for flawed product. Finding that coworkers are conducting unrelated business on company time. Concluding that it is impossible to keep a prior promise of no layoffs. Refusing to pay for substandard work. Discovering a business partner's unscrupulous dealings with clients. Being wrongly accused of racial discrimination. Finding the employer indifferent to an employee's sexual harassment complaint. Feeling anger and resentment about losing a job. Trying as a healthcare worker to be non-judgmental of HIV patients. Being asked for a reference on an unsatisfactory former employee. Learning of a conflict of interest involving two clients. Making downsizing recommendations in a consulting engagement. Feeling pressure to award contracts based on special interests. Manipulating a job description to circumvent discrimination laws. Wow, that was a really long list. And these are all real life ethical challenges faced by people who were interviewed for a study on how the church can support people in the workplace. This book is called How the Church Fails Business People and What Can Be Done About It. It's by John Knapp. I read this book when it first came out about 10 years ago, before I was a pastor, and I've been wanting to preach about it uh, for many years. My heart as a pastor and as a businessman feels a burden to connect what we learn and how we worship on Sundays to how we live and work the other six days of the week. Some of you know having conversations with P me and Pastor Matt and the other pastors that we have had in the church over the years that we are always willing to share our perspectives on workplace challenges. You know, as a group, the pastors of Delray Church have had a great deal of business knowledge, experience, and wisdom. Um, that's not always reflected uh, in, in the experiences of other people. Among our uh, most recent former pastors, Pastor Dave was an accountant and a chief financial officer at a manufacturing company. Pastor Bill worked in the uh, aerospace industry. Pastor Adam worked uh, for a nonprofit before being employed here. Uh, Pastor Matt has had probably the least uh, business work experience in the, in the business world, but the Lord has gifted him with discernment and wisdom to understand the real world of business, I have found. Uh, personally, before becoming a ministry worker and a pastor here, I had about 20 years experience in the business world, both in uh, this country and in Asia, in for-profit and non-profit. Uh, I held an undergraduate degree in economics and a master's in business administration, an MBA. And among our board members who are not pastors, we just prayed over them, but you know, we prayerfully they will be pastors someday. We have our chairman, James, 
who works in licensing and legal for Sony Pictures, Travis, who works in finance at a digital security company, and Wayne, who helps build the retail presence for cell phone companies uh, in Los Angeles, like T-Mobile, MetroPCS, and Verizon. Right? Plus, he is a YouTube entrepreneur in his spare time. Mike Dolan, as an example, had a lot of years in business before working here at church. Brian, that we just prayed for, has a lot of years of experience in business. All that to say, I do not think that as a church, we are poorly equipped to help the congregation navigate the challenges of day-to-day -day work life. But the book is called How the Church Fails Business People. And let's read a little more about uh, other people's experience with the church and their careers. So on page uh, 24 of this book, thank you, Malcolm, uh, you read this. The people we interviewed had often found it just as hard to bring their work-related concerns to church. A Chamber of Commerce executive uh, confided, there is such a disconnect. He confided that his work leaves him spiritually dead despite his active involvement in church. A director of a large charitable organization summed up a common sentiment. I think the church provides a solid foundation for faithful living, but I'm not sure the connection is made to work. It's much easier to talk about living out your faith through volunteerism, community engagement, or financial giving than to talk about a faithful approach to work issues. And some said the church intentionally avoids such issues. Many of us go to church as a respite from our weekday stress. Business isn't something people really want brought up at church. Too bad. Church is a place to get spiritually centered. I'm not sure it wants a role in workplace matters. It would be important to feel the freedom to talk about work-related problems with my pastor, but for some reason, it seems it wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, the church expects us to handle those situations personally. A scant few of our respondents were inclined to seek work-related guidance from members of clergy. Here's some quotes. I think preachers spend a lot of time, and rightly so, thinking about ancient problems. And while I'm sure people in Bible times wrestled with tough problems, our world is very different from theirs. Clergy are perceived solely as spiritual advisors. They are placed on a pedestal and not seen as advisors to business people. To seek a pastor's advice would presume that the minister had some specific knowledge of business, of the issues involved in a particular situation, and of the likely consequences for short and long-term profits. The minister is not in tune with today's workplace and could not relate, so it would be better to talk with someone who could automatically understand without getting me frustrated. A business owner who faced an ethical quandary over tax payments echoed these views. He said, I did not approach the church because ethical issues in business are not of any interest to any preacher I know. There is more of an emphasis on your family and how you live your personal life. And another said, my pastor has no idea what I do for a living and has never shown any interest in finding out by starting a conversation about the subject. He knows a great deal about my family, though. No respondent could recall a sermon or lesson at church that specifically addressed business or workplace issues, though several cited teachings on more general topics like love, forgiveness, and tolerance that could apply in a variety of social situations. A corporate executive described her pastor's sermons as offering, 
generally useful wisdom, but never any examples to connect it to the workplace. Uh, Another study yielded a similar finding. 90% of the respondents responded no to the question, have you ever in your life heard a sermon, read a book, listened to a tape, or been into a seminar that applied biblical principles to everyday work issues? The study's authors conclude, the church has grown virtually silent on the subject of work. Well, I certainly hope that's not the case here at Delray Church. The real-world challenges we face at work is why I started preaching this series of sermons about the challenges of uh, day-to-day work and the topic of work. As a pastor, I want to address the activity that we spend most of our waking hours doing. And this is the sixth uh, sermon in this series. And I'm not just talking about paid work. Those of us who are stay-at-home moms and those of us who are students are called by God to do that unpaid work in this season of life. That said, I realize that the list of challenges that I read were faced by people more in the business world and uh, sort of specifically the the for-profit business world. We could easily make a list, though, of ethical challenges that students face on campus. We could also easily make a list of ethical challenges faced by us in our other unpaid vocations. You know, in being a stay-at-home spouse, in homemaking, in parenting, and in volunteer work. You know, I'm glad to report that our sermon text for today, Micah 6.8, is broadly applicable to many areas of the Christian life. Let's read it really quickly. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Okay. So that's broadly applicable, but as we will see, the prophet himself was concerned with the economic sphere and unethical and predatory business practices. Now, in my first sermon back in September, I posed the question, how should we think about work? I taught that work was designed by God to be good, God himself worked in Genesis 1 and 2 to create the universe in six days, including the pinnacle of his creation, humankind. He also rested on the seventh day. God also created humankind to work. So work is ordained by God before the fall of humankind into sin, and therefore work is good. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and that ruined work turned good work into toil. The ground was cursed because of our sin, and it produces thorns and thistles for us. Metaphorically, that means now we have a lot of problems at work. We just read a whole bunch of them. Could you imagine if there weren't any problems at work? That's what we're talking about. Imagine a world where there isn't. The fall also means that all of Adam and Eve's descendants from Cain and Abel all the way to us were born with a fallen, sinful nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, of God's standard of holiness. And the wages of sin is death. So, God planned more work. Specifically the work of God the Son, who took on a human nature and was born the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what we commemorate at Christmas. He died on the cross as a payment for our sins. 
because the wages of sin is death, right? The payment that you earn. And resurrected after three days, showing that God accepted his work and showing that our future resurrection and everlasting life is a promise that will be fulfilled for all who believe. That is what we commemorate at Easter. Now, in my second sermon in October, I posed the question, how do we know what work God wants us to do? We explored the concept of vocation. Vocation is not just an educational term like vocational school. It is also a theological term that means calling, calling, vocal, calling. The theology of vocation is God calling each of us to do particular work and giving each of us gifts and talents to do so. We learned from several chapters in Exodus about how God, after he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, empowered them with talent and ability. And in particular, he gave uh, a couple of Israelite artisans particular skills and gifts. He commanded them to build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all the tools of worship that Israel was commanded to use to worship him, Yahweh. They were called to that work. They were gifted for that work, and they accomplished that work, and they did it to the letter. Now, in my third sermon in November, we asked, what should our attitude be toward work? Should we be religiously devoted to our work, or should we slack off and kind of go through the motions? If neither of those, then how should we work? I explored two errors that we can make in our attitude toward work. For some of us, work is the most important thing that we do, and we will sacrifice everything else to work. That is idolatry. Trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, our significance and security. For others of us, we don't like work that much, and we only work because we have to. That's sort of the opposite error of idolatry, more like slacking off or not living up to our potential. Right? But if we're totally honest with ourselves, the root cause of slacking off is very likely also idolatry, just not the idolatry of work. Then we went to two letters in the New Testament, Colossians and Ephesians, and we learned that God wants us to work as though we are working directly for Jesus himself. Right? We call him Lord, that's like saying boss. We want to work for, like we're working for Jesus and not just for human bosses. Or if we are bosses, to treat the people who work for us well because we also have a boss in heaven. In my fourth sermon in December, I endeavored to answer the question, what is the point of work? Sometimes we get lost in the drudgery of the everyday life, and we just can't see what the point of the daily grind is. Or we start thinking much bigger picture, but not quite big enough, and we think, I'm just going to die anyway, so what's the point of working my fingers to the bone just to leave it all behind? Now, to explore this problem, we spent time in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is 95% uh, the author uh, saying that life is pointless. Right? But it's not pointless. And uh, the point is that our lives and our work is God's gift to us. And in the end, the concluding command was this, fear God and keep his commandments. Right? So 95% of the, the book was about life being pointless, and then 5% sort of has this, you know, sort of help, uh, helpful um, disagreement with, with kind of the straw man that he set up. Now, fearing God and keeping his commandments is not good news when you think about it, because none of us fear God enough or keep his commandments well enough. 
And if God is just, if God is just, which he is, that he must punish any failure to keep his commandments, which is bad news indeed. So in light of that bad news, we need the good news of Jesus Christ, who did keep all of the commandments and who died in order to, keep, uh, to take the punishment for us for not keeping the commandments. So God can then maintain his justness, but also forgive us for sinning and falling short. This is the beauty of the good news. And in my fifth sermon last month, we answered the question, what should our motives be in our work? We read a passage from 1 Corinthians, which culminated in the command, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The glory of God, then, uh, is, or at least should be, our highest priority for any uh, activity, including work. Our second high, highest priority should be that we should work for others' good. And we supported that with the scriptures also. And then the third highest priority is our own joy and to meet our own needs. Now note the order. The order is very important. If you get these out of order, you will have big problems. Like if we put number three first, right? We will be selfish and self-centered. Or if we put number two first, we might be good people who do a lot of good work, uh, work in the world, but that's a false religion. 100 years ago, it was called the social gospel. The true gospel has God and Christ at the center. But if they are in order, if they are in order, then your priorities and motives are aligned with God's. In business school, we read a seminal paper called On the Folly of Hoping for, uh, sorry, Rewarding A when Hoping for B. On the Folly of Rewarding A when Hoping for B. So your company, and you're hoping for one outcome, B. Right? But the incentive structure of your company makes it so that all of your employees are going for something different, A. Right? So this was HR management class. We, we wanted to understand that incentives are really important. Right? The point in business school was that a company needs to align its incentives for its employees with the overall goals of the company, what the company is trying to achieve. If it doesn't, the employee's motives will be different than what the company is trying to uh, achieve. And in our case, in our case as Christians in the church, we need to align our motives with God's one, two, and three because God is A and everything else is B, which is not good. Right? Now that's a long lead up to today's sermon and the question we are addressing today, which is how do we handle ethical problems at work? This is the most difficult question uh, we have tackled so far. But I pray that the first number of sermons that we've gone through, like sort of handling these basic questions, can be the foundation for a lot of conversations, not necessarily a lot of sermons uh, per se, because every one of the ethical challenges that I read at the beginning of the sermon could be its own seminar, right? But I think... The, the basis is there, and so I want to go into this difficult question. The, that list of ethical challenge uh, shows us how many and how varied the problems are that we face. And I would say um, that 
It's not easy to implement the answers to the five questions that we covered earlier in the sermon series, but biblically the answers are fairly straightforward. Now, whether you can actually reorient your attitudes toward work into, say, prioritizing the glory of God above your own needs and above your own uh, desires is a matter of prayer, will, trusting in God to work in your heart. It's not easy. But I think the answers are right there in the scriptures for us. On the other hand, tackling the complexities of today's ethical challenges are not directly found in the Bible, for the most part. We need a biblical philosophy of business ethics to guide us. And then we need a whole lot more in order to follow God's will as we work. Now, one Bible verse we could uh, go to is simply the great commandment. Matthew 22 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Oh yeah, just that. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not too tough. Yeah, those are helpful, of course. Not possible on our own strength to achieve. But they're helpful, but they're you know, pretty general. So today I want to unpack another verse and, and see how it can help us uh, develop a philosophy of business ethics. Okay, so this goes back to Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8, once again. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Okay. Now let's talk briefly about the book of Micah. Micah is the prophet Micah who lived more than 700 years before Christ. He and the prophet Isaiah, you probably know him, were contemporaries. Uh, This was right about the time that the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun, defeated, and wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, After about 300 years of Israel wandering away from God. God, over those 300 years, was being patient and gracious with Israel and also with the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah is where uh, Jerusalem is. Now, this uh, defeat of Israel by Assyria was in 722 B.C. 722 B.C. Judah lasted another 140 years or so before Babylon came and took over uh, Judah and took away Judah into captivity. That was 586 B.C., okay? So it was both Isaiah and Micah who prophesied to the kingdom of Judah to bring the Lord's warning to repent. And it worked for a period of time at least, right? 140 years. The third king that Micah preached to, King Hezekiah of Judah, humbled himself and led the nation into a period of repentance. Hezekiah is therefore considered one of Judah's most faithful kings. He followed in the ways of the Lord. In fact, there is a historical note in the book of Jeremiah, which is quite a bit later, that refers to Micah preaching to Hezekiah about 140 years earlier. This is from Jeremiah chapter 26. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? 
No. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord, and the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them? Yes. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Jeremiah was preaching quite a bit later during, during that period of time when Babylon uh, defeated Judah. Okay. The conclusion of that discussion uh, is that the political and religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem actually did spare Jeremiah's life. Okay, so what did Micah preach and prophesy about? In short, he preached about the immorality and injustice in Israel and Judah. He prophesied the destruction of both of them. And a little more specifically, and to the point of today's message, Micah preached against immoral business practices in his day. You've got Micah 6, 8 in front of you. Let us flip back a page or two to uh, Micah chapter 2. First two verses of Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When the morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And skip ahead to verse 8. Recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned to war, from war. That's how to treat your veterans, right? The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off the skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. He's being metaphorical here. He's saying the people are starving while you fatten yourselves off of the, the money and, and wealth that you steal from them. Okay. And then, uh, skipping past Micah 6 8 to verse 10, Micah 6 10. Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales? and a bag of deceptive weights. Okay, that would be used to, to cheat people. Right? If you put the wrong weights on things, they're supposed to weigh one thing, but if you put the wrong weights on something, you're cheating people out of whatever you're supposed to pay them or whatever they're giving you, like their grain or whatever. Right? For, the men of, uh, for the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. These are business ethics, people. And significantly, Micah is clearly preaching against the entire nation, against an entire system of injustice. Right? The, the opening of the book of Micah says this, The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, that would be the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jerusalem. He says, hear, O peoples, all of you, 
Listen, O earth and all it contains. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. The word of the Lord came to everybody. Now you could try and justify or rationalize the sin as individual, but you would be incorrect. And what makes it clear that everyone is involved in this system is that Micah prophesies the destruction of the whole nation. These aren't isolated cases of sin. That wouldn't make sense to destroy the whole nation. That would be like God destroying the U.S. just because, I don't know, the Andersons and the Joneses and the Shens were sinful. He's going to destroy the whole nation as discipline. Right? So with that as background, let's turn uh, back to Micah 6.8. The, uh, on your outline, it has this, the Lord has told us, or the Lord has shown us. Okay, very simply, the God has revealed His will in Scripture. This is literally called the Word of God. Okay, Scripture is how God communicates to us. Okay? And that's why we call the Bible the Word of God. It comes to God through the men of God like Micah. Second, the Lord has shown us what is good. Uh, the goodness of God is one of the attributes of God. Okay? In short, God is the ultimate standard of all good. Everything He is and everything He does is worthy of approval. He's the standard. God Himself is good. Uh, this is repeated several times in, in Scripture. The, the ones that come most uh, quickly to mind for me are the beginnings of like Psalm 106, 107, 118, 136. Literally the first line in all of those psalms is, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Hold on to that word, loving kindness, for a minute. And what the Lord requires of us, okay? These are requirements. They're not optional. They're not requests. They're not nice-to-haves. They're must-haves, right? What is required of us is not religious practice alone, okay? Just before this, in Micah 6 and 7, Micah 6, 6 and 7, he says, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? He's talking about the sacrificial system that's in the book of Leviticus. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? You can't buy God's favor just by sacrificing more. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Ironically, this is exactly what God himself did, right? He, he sacrificed his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John Sarian, our brother, read uh, a similar little passage from 1 Samuel uh, when he was leading us in the hymn. And uh, there's another uh, passage, short couple of verses in Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Okay, what does this say to us? Well, like I said, religious practice alone is not sufficient. Going to church on Sunday, yeah, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Especially if we then ignore the scriptures and the will of God at work Monday through Friday. We have to be sure to repent of our attitudes and turn our hearts toward God. So what are the three things the Lord requires of us? Number one, to do justice. To do justice is not just to follow the law. It is to follow the law. But it is not just to follow the law. It's not just to say, you know, the Bible is a bunch of do this and do that, and I'm going to kind of you know, weave my way in there and, and do this or do that. The great commandment, remember, is love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And everything else flows from that. So it's really, really broad anyway. And then we have the laws of our, of our nation, uh, at least the moral ones, right? Now, to do justice is to strive for justice in all the different ways. Now, I need to point the finger at myself and my own ilk for a little while because the, the practice and the field of economics in which I am trained is one primarily about self-interest, about so-called rational actors who try to maximize profits and use resources in the quote-unquote most efficient way possible without regard for emotions and without regard for the care for others, which is considered not rational. Okay? It's a, I mean, it's kind of helpful to think about economics in that way, for, you know, in some ways, but I'm going to just say it that I think it's, it's a false philosophy if it doesn't include the care of people. Uh, and then in terms of finance, right? In terms of finance, finance tends to measure that which is easily measured, which is what? Dollars. Dollars and cents. My wife, Jenny, works with organizations to promote social change, and they have this thing. It's kind of, it's, you know, as an economist, it sounds weird to me. As a financial person, it sounds weird to me. But there's this so-called double bottom line, or sometimes even triple bottom line. Right? What do they mean by that? Because the one bottom line is just the dollars and cents, and then the double bottom line, the triple bottom line is you know, all the other like, uh, fuzzy things that you can't measure. Right? But you know, you got, like, if you're a do-gooder kind of company, and you've got like, corporate responsibility you know, on your mission statement, then you should, like, do, uh, you should do a, a triple bottom line. Right? So we're talking about doing justice. Right? And not just in the sort of like that bottom line way or that economics way where you're only measuring like certain things, but you're taking everything into account, right? Now, we're talking about, therefore, some kind of collective justice. Right? We're, so, we're talking about some kind of justice that isn't just me uh, with, um, let's say, uh, you shall not commit adultery, right? Being faithful to my wife, and then I'm obeying God, therefore I'm not going to look at certain things, I'm not going to lust after certain people, and that's like very personal, right? That's very private, it's very individual. I'm talking about something more collective. And this is what Micah is preaching about as well. Right? And not to trigger anybody, 
but there is a phrase that has been very controversial over the last few years, social justice, right? I don't even, I hesitate to even use social, the, the phrase social justice. But it's pretty clear that the Bible, specifically in Micah and lots of other places in the Bible, speak about some sort of collective justice. Now, not social justice in the social justice warrior kind of way where, you know, um, uh, the secular world thinks of it in terms of this uh, particular political goal or this particular goal or whatever. Not that, right? Not, not necessarily that. But definitely some sort of sense of collective justice. And this is what Micah is preaching about, to do justice. And if we're honest about it, or even just educated about it, we understand that we Christians are also about collective justice, social justice, in some ways at least, right? Uh, historically speaking, uh, we are all about the uh, abolition of slavery, right? We're all about the abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce, for example, is a member of parliament who pretty much single-handedly, maybe he had a couple of like mentors and helpers, but pretty much single-handedly, like over the period of decades, you know, pushed for and eventually won the abolition of slavery in Great Britain and the outlawing of, of, of the slave trade, okay? And it took a number of decades later for that to happen in the United States, but nonetheless, the abolitionist movement in the United States was led by what? Bible-believing Christians. Okay, so we know all about this. This is not just a personal thing. I, oh yeah, I don't own slaves, that's cool. No, the whole society is condemned because of what we do together, right? When we, when we don't stand up against injustice. Uh, more recently, we have abortion. Abortion is a multi-billion dollar industry. Proverbs 31, which we read at the beginning of service, says, speak up for the mute and the oppressed. What group of people are more mute and unable to defend themselves than the unborn? So we know that there is this need for Christians to rise up and do what is right, to seek justice. Okay? And we could go on and on and on, right? Housing, education, government, the role of government, and all that it touches, right? And these things are systems. These things are systems that are integral to our modern world. No one person or small group of persons are culpable, that is to say guilty, for all of it. And many individuals might not be committing any individual sin, but they're part of a problematic system, right? Imagine being a sailor on a ship 350 years ago. It's not sinful to have a job as a sailor, is it? No. You raise the sails, you keep the lookout, you clean the decks. There's nothing sinful there. But what if you were serving on a slave ship? You're complicit in the system of slavery. Can't just look at ourselves individually in terms of sin. The point is we Christians are called to do justice and not to just be just or to be moral, but to do Justice, that is to advocate for justice and for just systems of government and economics, according to the word of God, of course, not according to the secular world, and that is what Micah was preaching against. All right, the second thing the Lord requires of us is to love kindness or to love mercy. This is this, uh, this uh, Hebrew word, chesed, chesed, 
loving kindness. Right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness, as said, is everlasting. Okay? It's also translated mercy or kindness. There are a handful of other uh, Hebrew words that are also uh, translated mercy. Um, but this also is another attribute of God. Right? His goodness and also His said, His loving kindness. Right? Uh, in Exodus 34, Exodus 34, uh, the Lord is talking to Moses and he, he says this about Himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, loving kindness and truth, who keeps hesed, loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Okay, that's justice also, right? Like the requirement to do justice, this is a high standard. It isn't merely to be kind. It is to love kindness the way God loves kindness. We are trying to reach out in compassion to those in need. It is, in the words of the Lord Jesus, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another. And often, you know, I think of like homelessness or uh, like drug addicts in San Francisco or something like that. There's this, uh, there's this misguided effort to give people stuff that doesn't actually help them. Right? It just like keeps them, uh, not, not literally chained, but metaphorically chained to, to their current circumstances. So that, that would not be loving. Right? So I have a lot of issues with the way we do public policy around here. But nonetheless, we're talking about we should also do this kind of thing. We should commit our will to the true good of another. Now, doesn't this seem impossible in the business world? It does to me, too. But this is why we need at least two things. First and most importantly, we need the power of God. Because on our own, we don't have the power. Blessedly, we do have the power of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, so we do have power from on high. And secondly, we need fellowship with other Christians. There is a strength in numbers. We are stronger if we band together to love our neighbors, even our neighbors who are in competing companies. Um, right? We band together to stand up for and to do justice together. We must remember the exhortation that we read in Ephesians in the New Testament, which is to speak the truth in love with everyone. Uh, there's another phrase, to speak truth to power. Micah has been doing that. The prophets did that. Speak truth to power. Uh, speak the truth in love from Ephesians. It is a failure, brothers and sisters, it is a failure on our part to love our neighbors if we keep silent while our neighbors, co-workers, bosses, competitors, government workers participate in unjust systems. We must confront them gently and lovingly, but firmly. And we must not get confused that kindness means weakness. We need to be strong and bold. The third requirement from God is to walk humbly with our God. To walk humbly is to walk where we know our rightful place. Right? Humility is to know your rightful place. To, to be humble is to avoid the deadly spiritual sin and error of pride 
Now, pride is a root-level sin. Okay? Pride is a root-level sin. So many other sins spring from the root of pride. Lucifer was prideful and fell and is now known as Satan. Right? Now, pride is thinking too highly of yourself. We certainly don't want to be prideful vis-a-vis -vis God. James 4.6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, at the most fundamental level, walking humbly with our God means understanding that we can never be right with God except for God's own intervention. Admitting that we are sinful and approaching God for forgiveness, God is indeed gracious to forgive. And, in fact, it is not us who approach God, but rather God who draws sinners to himself. Humility is understanding that the Scripture tells us that even the faith that we place in God was given to us by God in the first place, as the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2. Okay? Now, humility can change the world. Our Lord Jesus was humble. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not regard his divinity something to be held on to, but he purposely withheld the use of his divine power. He purposely laid aside his divine prerogatives and privileges for a time, and he humbled himself. He took on a weak human nature, and he allowed himself to be put to death. Indeed, a shameful death on a cross. Jesus' humility and sacrifice changed the world, and he also commanded us to follow him. Philippians 2 commands us to have a humble attitude like Jesus. So we also, this is a requirement, what does the Lord require of thee? Humble ourselves and trust him that through us he can continue to transform the world. Pride tells us that we know better than God. And that's why we sin. And that's also why we are afraid to stand up against the whole world to speak up, to do justice and to love kindness. Pride tells us we know better than, than you, God. I know you told me to do justice and to love kindness, but I don't want to. I know better it wouldn't be practical. It's going to cost me a lot of money. It might cost me my job. It'll cost me my career if I do justice and love kindness. So therefore, I'm not going to do it. You say that to God face to face. Humility will also understand that, uh, help us understand we don't have all the answers. The socioeconomic problems I mentioned uh, before are vastly complex. I can give you my viewpoints, uh, what I think the root causes and the solutions are, uh, but I could be wrong, and I certainly don't know what all the systematic solutions are, right, to all the systematic problems, let alone how to implement them. And this is why a community of faith engaged in discourse and exchanges of ideas is so important. God works through his people. Just ask William Wilberforce. All right. In conclusion, we are to be transformed. I want to exhort all of us to be transformed. The first step is to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you don't believe in Jesus as God and that he died for your sins personally, I have bad news for you. You are spiritually dead. You are looking forward to an eternity in hell 
as the just punishment for your sins. Don't go down that road. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. In other words, I'm inviting you to be one of us. We who are in Christ are not better than you. We were once unforgiven sinners just like you. But now we're sinners who are forgiven. So you can join us. You just need to trust in Jesus. God is forgiving. So come, humble yourself at the foot of the cross. Now this is the very reason why God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus. In addition to Micah 6.8, there is another well-known part of Micah's prophecy, and that is found in Micah 5.2, which says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Okay? More than 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, predicted that the tiny town of Bethlehem was the town that Jesus was going to be born in. Of course this came true. And this and many other prophecies that have come true proves that this book is of divine origin. That means, that means, friends, that we can believe it as God's instruction in all that it teaches. We can obey it as God's command in all that it requires. And we can trust it as God's pledge in all that it promises. Now coming to Christ is the first step of a lifetime of transformation and growth. Let us follow God's word in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, the goodness of God, remember, and acceptable and perfect. Fellow Christians, we have spent too much time conforming to this world. Let's get about the business of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, learning what the Word of God tells us and then living it out. And when we fall short, because we will inevitably fall short, let's go back to the cross and ask forgiveness and grace. God will grant it to us. He is powerful and gracious to forgive. But we need to go out there and we need to not be conformed to business, the business world that has all these unethical practices. Okay. And also, let's be a force for transformation. Fellow Christians, first and foremost, let's preach the gospel of salvation to our friends, neighbors, and yes, our colleagues and co-workers and bosses and employees and vendors and suppliers and customers and contractors. The message of Christianity is not us against them. It is us reaching out to them with the gospel in the hope and prayer that God will be gracious to them and make them into more of us. Yeah, we tend to put our, our, our faith in um, lawyers and Supreme Court decisions and presidents. But nothing changes the human heart except for God. And the method by which God has ordained to change the human heart is for us to preach the gospel to a lost and perishing world. 
Second, let's start being more vocal, individually and as a group, about the bigger picture of ethical and moral problems in the work world around us. We open the st- sermon with a statement, imagine a world where we never had to deal with this long list of ethical challenges. Well, we do have to deal with it. And it's not always easy. I spoke to a brother several months ago who was getting pressure to sign something that wasn't true in order to get financing for a business deal. The argument coming to him was, it's no big deal. No one's going to check. Everyone does it. It's just a formality. So he called me. We talked about it. He didn't sign. The deal fell apart. So no deal. It cost him. It cost him that. But what does he have? He has his integrity. His conscience is intact. He obeyed and honored God. On your outline is another statement. Imagine a world where all Christians acted like Christians at work. I heard something like that coming from the mouth of Pastor Matt after church history class just a few days ago on Wednesday night. Uh, I kind of wish that I had written it down like word for word because I think the way you said it was the better than I just wrote it up here. But what if our church brother and other Christians took an additional step and said to the people, right, the bank who wanted him to sign this thing and said, hey, you should stop pressuring people to sign something that isn't true, right? You should stop even asking people for that. It's not the right way to do business. Don't ask anyone that ever again. And what if that worked, right? This is how corrupt systems get changed, isn't it? By larger and larger groups of people refusing to go along with it. So imagine if we individually and collectively repented of sin, trusted in God's power of transformation, trusted in the rewards that he promises to us in the everlasting future, we preached the gospel of Christ's salvation, and then crusaded for change in our worlds. Right? By the power of God, our world could be so different. Right? Church, let's be a force for that change. I know that seems totally unrealistic, and impractical. Right? I don't think anyone, well maybe you are, and that'd be awesome. I don't think anyone's saying, can't wait to get out of here and I'm going to go do that. Exactly what Pastor Tony just preached. Right? So anyway, let's start small then. Let's start small with prayer. Ask God to reveal to you where you can be part of this force for transformation. Step two, also a small step. Engage with your Christian community. Right? Your pastors, your new board members. Uh, we all have a fair amount of business acumen. Okay? Your brothers and sisters at church also. Right? Let's talk about the ethical problems at work. I did that myself just this past Friday. Right? Talked with a bunch of brothers about this thing that I, I thought was not right to do. Might end up costing uh, me and my family. Now, step three might be this bigger thing, uh, this transformative thing. In considering it, let me just say this. Let's not underestimate the power of God. Let's not underestimate the power of God himself. Let us not forget 
that we came from an obscure sect of Judaism whose founder was executed and whose earliest followers, 11 of them or so, went into hiding and which for its first 300 years was an illegal religion in the most powerful empire of the world. God can do this. God can do this. A.W. Tozer, author and theologian, has this quote. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would have stopped and everybody would have known the difference. God can do this. Let's trust in him. All right, now that's a big undertaking. So let's close our service with some sustenance for that mission that's laid out before us. Let's take a little meal that we share here at church. Let's take the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus did his work to transform the world. On the night that he was betrayed, he prayed this to, to, uh, to his and our Heavenly Father in John uh, 17, 3-4. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, just before praying this, Jesus had taken bread and wine, and he said that when we eat it and drink it, we remember him, and we declare his death until he comes. So let's just do that. Let's do that. Let us declare his death by taking the bread and the juice. And then as we leave this place, let's also declare his death and his resurrection and the salvation that comes with it using words to a lost and perishing and unethical world. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for grace and forgiveness. Grace for the journey that lies ahead. Grace and power for the challenging situations we will face at work. Forgiveness for when we fall short. Forgiveness for having sinned against you and for when we will sin against you. Give us help in our unbelief when we don't trust your word and don't follow it. Give us faith to trust in your Son as our Savior and follow him as our Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit to empower us against sin and embolden us for our mission. Be with us this week and throughout our working lives as we seek to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Amen.